Well, we're just a few weeks from football season. And if you're a football fan, then you know that now is the time when teams are getting ready. They're mastering their playbooks. They're going through the plays. They're making sure that they're in sync and they have everything down, that they're up to speed, ready for the season. Did you know that one way that a lot of teams, they train a young quarterback to get ready for the season? Well, they do that by eliminating half the field. They ask their quarterback simply to focus on one half of the field to make sure that he can see that half well and get the ball out quickly and make his reads quickly. And then once he masters that, well, then they throw the whole playbook at him. They open up the whole field and see if he can do that when he's working with everything. And some quarterbacks, well, they pick it up and they run. But there are other quarterbacks who, when they just have half the field, they look really good. But then when you introduce the whole playbook and you open up the whole field to them, well, then they get a little tentative. The ball does not come out so quickly. Their reads, they take a little longer. There's a little more confusion. It just becomes a little bit too much. In some ways, uh, in the Christian life, there's this other half of the field that we don't always pay attention to. Yeah, we focus on the physical world, but sometimes we miss the spiritual world. In our series, What Were You Thinking?, we've asked the question, how should we think about the Bible? How should we think about God? How should we think about humanity and sin? And this week, well, we're going to that other half of the field. We're going to the spiritual world, and we're asking the question, how should we think about angels, Satan, and demons? It's interesting because culture at large has this fascination and this curiosity about angels, demons, Satan, the spiritual world. They're asking questions and you look around any library, there's often books about this topic. There's TV shows, many TV shows have been made about the spiritual world and there's just a lot of confusion there. The problem is there's a lot of confusion and fog in the church as well. You look at major de denominational leaders and they are debating the eternality of hell. There's many Protestant, many Protestant leaders who say that Satan isn't really a literal personality, that he instead is just this metaphor for evil, that he really doesn't exist. Others within the evangelical world say that they believe in some form, of, some form of animism, where spirits actually attach themselves to animals or to objects and to things like this. And sometimes in the church, you'll hear when somebody dies that people will comfort them by saying, oh, well, heaven just gained another angel. And so this is the way we think. And then you look at the other half of the Reformational divide into the Roman Catholicism, and they have a very confusing history related to the spiritual world as well. In fact, several recent popes have encouraged Catholics to be praying to their guardian angels. So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to dive into. And it's very interesting to me that Scripture gives us two very strong warnings that believers are supposed to... Uh, Think very carefully about angels and demons. Paul, he writes these warnings. The first one is in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. And he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It doesn't matter if an angel tells it to you. If they're saying something false, let him be accursed. The other strong warning, 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Did you know in 2 Corinthians 11, the Bible says that Satan actually disguises himself as an angel of light. Why? To try to deceive us and things like this. And it's no wonder that he does, right? I mean, how many of us would be tempted if Satan comes and he's wearing this little red suit and he's got these pointed horns and he's got this tail and a pitchfork in his hand? I mean, nobody's going to be tempted by someone who looks like that. But how many people have been tempted to where they say they've seen this vision of light in this form and they get confused and they think it's God? It's clear that there's a lot of confusion and a lot of fascination out there. At the same time, the Bible gives us strong warnings about how we should think about the spiritual world. So it is critical that we are thinking rightly. While I can't cover everything this morning, I do want to address three primary questions as it relates to the spiritual world. And those questions are, what do angels do? Do do demons have unrestrained authority? And how does the believer engage in spiritual warfare? What do angels do? Do demons have unrestrained authority? And how does the believer engage in spiritual warfare? So we'll talk about angels first and what they do. But before we get there, I think it's worth mentioning that angels probably aren't exactly the way we conceive of them. I mean, throughout scripture, whenever an angel shows up, people get scared. I mean, people are terrified of them. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He wrote, Fra Angelico's angels carry in their face and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. Later came the chubby and infantile nudes of Raphael. Finally, the soft, slim, girlish, and conciliatory angels of the 19th century art. In scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It, has been, it always begins by saying, fear not. The current angel looks as if it were going to say, they're there. It is interesting, isn't it? Uh, you remember in scripture, when John, he sees this angel in Revelation, and what does he do? He falls down. At first, he begins to pray to the angel, and the angel has to rebuke him. He says, no, you don't pray to me. You don't worship me. You only worship God alone. Kind of goes against what some of the recent popes have told Catholics. Also, you remember in 2 Kings, when one angel shows up and single-handedly wipes out 200,000 enemy troops? Or when Jesus, he gets arrested and Peter, he comes to his defense and he slices off the, the ear of the Roman soldier. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter. He says, Peter, if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels. I mean, you get this idea that angels are really tough, that they're mighty, that they're strong. They probably aren't how we often conceive of them. So, what do angels do? Well, first, they exalt the character of God. Angels exalt the character of God. Look at Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. So the psalmist, he's actually telling us a couple of things here. First, the angels have a point of origin. That is, God created them. And then that angels, along with the rest of God's creation, praise him. Job tells us that the angels were there when the universe was created. And they threw a party. They were shouting. They were so excited to respond to God's creative acts. Uh, In Revelation, we see this incredible number of angels gathered around the throne of God. It says there's thousands of thousands, myriads upon myriads of angels worshiping God. Angels exalt the character of God. It's one of the primary things they do. And more than that, they also execute the will of God. I don't have time to go through and just show you all these examples of this, but we see it time after time after time that angels do what God tells them to do. They recognize God's authority, and so they they announce, and they guard, and they protect, and they do whatever it is that God is asking them to do. They exalt the character of God. They execute the will of God. And angels also enforce the judgment of God. Angels discipline believers in 2 Samuel 24. They punish unbelievers in Genesis 19. And in Revelation, they destroy all of the earth's resources during the great tribulation. And then at the great white throne judgment, it is angels who carry away unbelieving humanity and throw them into the lake of fire. And so there's these three main functions, uh, jobs really that angels have, things they do. Angels exalt the character of God. Angels execute the will of God. And angels enforce the judgment of God. Now, why is this important for you and me to know? Because the emphasis is all about God. Did you see that? See, for us as humans who depend upon the activity of angels is to dilute the power of God. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he also wrote in 2 Corinthians 12.9 that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, to focus on angels is to dilute the power of God. He can choose to send angels to protect, to accompany, to guard, to do all these things, to minister to us. Or he can choose not to. But our need is not angels. We we don't need angels to guard us and protect us. Our need, our ultimate need is God. And if he chooses to work through his angels to minister to us, great, all the better. But our ultimate need is simply God. And so to look and to rely and to call upon the presence of angels, well, that is to dilute the power of God. And this flows to the next application. And that is our job is not to determine whether these stories about angels that we sometimes hear are true or false. Our job is simply to rightly divide the word of truth. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy about in 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. You know, God has not told us every single thing about the unseen world. He hasn't told us every last thing about angels and demons and Satan and other flying creatures. He has told us everything we need to know, though. Everything we need to know, God has revealed to us. And so our job is to study, live, and teach the word of truth that's been given to us. Okay, to simply go into the spiritual world and try to ascertain, oh, is this true, is this not true? Well, that just leads to a whole bunch of confusion. Our job is to focus on what we know is true. Now, apart from angels, well, there's also demons. And I want to make a few comments uh, first about what we know to be true of Satan, okay, the leader of the demons. Then we can talk more broadly about demons and really answer that question, do demons have unrestrained access, unrestrained authority? Um, In talking about Satan, a really important passage that you should just kind of earmark in your Bible is Ezekiel 28. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to point out several things from this chapter and and, and what we learn about Satan from this uh, chapter. And first, we should note that Satan was created with the other angels. That's right. Satan is or began as an angel. Uh, And he was a specific type of angel. Uh, It tells us that he was a cherub. Now, cherubim, they are the guardian angels, and they are always tasked with protecting things. And Satan, he wasn't just any cherub. I mean, he was top-notch cherub. He was tasked in charge of leading all the cherubim. Uh, In fact, in Matthew, the demons are referred to as his angels, because when Satan fell, he took one third of the angels with him, and so they become his demons, or Matthew, as his angels. He's still executing authority over the demons who followed him. Now, this is interesting, because Satan falls, he takes one third of those angels with him, and all of those angels, all these fallen angels, they have no hope of redemption. And so, you know what this causes amongst true angels? a fascination with the gospel, a curiosity about the gospel. First Peter 1.12 says this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, that is the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You get the idea here that angels are stretching their necks and they're bending down because they want to see just all of the ramifications of the gospel. Just what does this good news mean? How does it happen? How does it work? Why are they so interested in this? Why do they strain and stretch and yearn to see and to look into the gospel? Because no angel will ever have a personal testimony of redemption. Christ did not die for angels. Angels do not trust Christ as Savior. They will not reign as joint heirs of Christ. But at the same time, they rejoice in redemption. It it captures their interest. They want to look at it. The Bible says that when one sinner who is lost and is now found, that the angels throw a party that there's much rejoicing. Angels love the gospel. 
because they realize that this is for humanity and this is out of God's goodness and mercy and grace. Angels love the gospel because they love to exalt the character of God. But Satan and his demons, oh, they hate the gospel. They hate the good news. Satan, the Bible says, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not omnipresent. He's not just everywhere. He's not omnipotent. He does not have all power. He's extremely powerful, but he's not omnipotent. Uh, here are four methods, okay, that Satan and his demons use against believers. Okay, I think these four are important to note. First, temptation. And this is a, an attempt to discredit the believer and destroy the fellowship that a believer has with God. Second, persecution. And this is an attempt to discourage the believer and to damage trust in God. Third, division. And this is an attempt to disrupt the unity of the church, unity of the believers of God, and to dissolve the unity with others. And fourth, deception. And that's an attempt to distract the believer and to dilute the purity of the gospel. In other words, Satan and his demons, they're not just like kind of lobbing like little peaches at us and, you know, we'll see if we get a peach stain on us that we have to wipe off or something like that. No, these attacks are very serious because these attacks, they amount to a matter of God's reputation, a matter of Christ's glory and honor in the world, a matter of being used by Christ for the advancement of his gospel and his church, a matter of enjoying the pre preciousness of the unity of the saints, and a matter of protecting the purity of the gospel. So these attacks are very serious. Our response as believers are very serious. And so spiritual warfare is a big deal. But it's important to note that sa Satan and his demons do not have unrestrained authority. For instance, believers cannot be demon-possessed. The Bible says that we were saved out of darkness into his marvelous light, and that we were rescued from this domain of darkness, and that we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so demons can't possess because we're already possessed. We're possessed, we're owned by God. And while they can't possess us, though, they can influence the believer. They can tempt. They, they can do all the things we talked about, divide, persecute, things like this. But we have hope here. Because Satan and his demons, they don't have any power to do any of that without God's permission. They can't attack without God's permission. They can't mention a believer's name without God's permission. They don't know our thoughts. They don't know the future. And what's more, if we resist, they flee. And so we know all of this from scripture. Sometimes we have this idea that Satan is like God's opposite. Okay, God is the omnipotent force of good, and Satan is the omnipotent force of evil, and they just clash head to head. The Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible teaches very clearly Satan is God's subordinate. And how powerful are Satan and his demons? How much authority do they have? Well, they're not one bit more powerful than God allows them to be. He is always in charge. God is always in charge. He's always in control. Satan and his demons are only as powerful as God allows. And the truth is this, the power of Satan is delegated. The influence of Satan is limited. The success of Satan is permitted for a time. The judgment of Satan is determined and the destruction of Satan's kingdom, well, it's guaranteed. And so with all of this said, there is still a very real battle 
with how we go about spiritual warfare and interact with demons and Satan today. Paul said it in Ephesians 6.12. He said this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, what Paul is saying in this verse is absolutely stunning. He's informing the Ephesian church and and all of us now as believers that every time that we seek to do the will of God, every time that we seek to live faithfully before Christ, every time that we resist temptation, every every time that we do any of that, we are engaged in something something so far beyond that often what we often realize, that we're, we're engaged in more than temptation. We're engaged in more than just the mundane trials of life. That as believers, we are involved in actually advancing victoriously against the powers and the personalities of hell. This is a big deal. That we wrestle against the spiritual world. And how do we wrestle effectively? I mean, that's really the question. How do we as believers engage in spiritual warfare? How do we wage this battle and win? Well... Paul kept on writing. Ephesians 6, 13 through 18, Paul says this, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand evil in the day. And having done all to stand firm, stand there, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, I could preach a whole sermon just on the armor of God. I mean, we could do a whole series on it if we wanted to, and many pastors have. You've probably heard some if you've been in the church for a time. But Paul says this. There's a couple things I want to point out that he says, take it up, put it on. Therefore, it is possible to be a believer and to not put on the full armor of God. And a believer like that is in a very vulnerable position. But even once it's on, even once you've got all this stuff on, you've got your helmet, you've got your belt, you've got your breastplate, you've got your shoes, you've got your sword, you've got everything that you have to have on, what do you do? What's the first thing you do after you get all your armor on? Pray. Isn't that interesting? The first thing you do after you have all this stuff up and you look like you're ready for battle, the first thing you do is pray. Why do we pray? Well, because you've got all dressed up to fight a battle, but you cannot see the enemy. It's a spiritual world. You cannot see the enemy by yourself. Secondly, you get all dressed up and you pray because this is a fight that you cannot win by yourself. See, it's a battle against, against a spiritual force that you cannot see by yourself, and it's a battle that you can't win by yourself. It doesn't matter how strong the armor is. It is possible to face Satan and his attacks and be ill-equipped and not be able to resist. Why? Because we haven't put on the armor. We're not ready because we haven't prayed. God intends 
that the church would swing the sword and that we would advance and that one day he will be seen as all in all because the church is faithfully putting on the armor, resisting the evil one and doing what we're called to do. It's not going to be done by people who don't put on the armor. It's not going to be done by people who aren't praying. This is going to happen by means of prayer. So how do we engage in spiritual warfare? We put on the armor of God and we pray. We put on the armor of God and we pray. You know, it's interesting. We, we come to a topic like this and we think about angels and demons and Satan in the spiritual world. And it can be intriguing, it can be fascinating, it, it can be a little bit confusing. But I hope as we rightly think about angels, as we rightly think about Satan and his demons, that what, what emerges from all this study is an even greater appreciation for our sovereign God and a desire to know him and his word more. You know, so oftentimes we go to God to get more from God instead of just getting more of God. We're more interested in what he holds in his hand than really his hand and knowing more of him. You know, if your quarterback for your football team, if he only knows half the playbook, and then he decides he's going to spend all the rest of his time just learning all of his opponent's plays and what they're doing and just let's see if I can master all this and how they're going to respond to me. Well, come game day, that quarterback, that team is going to be in a whole lot of trouble. If we spend our time consumed and just trying to understand Satan and trying to understand demons and trying to understand angels, when we have so much to learn about God, so much more to learn about his character and who he is and how he acts, well, we're going to be ill-equipped for the battle at hand. God, who is powerful over the spiritual world, he, he strengthens us. He gives us the armor and we can go to him so that we can win. You know, Paul said it this way, that he resolved to effectively know nothing else except for Christ and Christ crucified. That's a winning playbook. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this spiritual world that's out there that we cannot see and sometimes uh, gets us a little scared or confused or we're intrigued by and fascinated with, God cause us to be grounded in your truth cause us to put on the armor of God and to pray to the one who can beat this enemy uh, because we recognize we cannot win by ourselves. We need your help. So we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.